0: Hello and welcome to Watching China in Europe. I'm your host, Noah Barkin, and today we're going to be talking about the trade relationship between the European Union and China, Europe's relationship with Taiwan, and transatlantic cooperation on trade and technology. As my guest, I'm very pleased to welcome Sabina Vayant, who is Director General for Trade at the European Commission. She played a leading role in the EU's push for a comprehensive agreement on investment with China one year ago. And she has been deeply involved in efforts to put the transatlantic trade relationship back on a positive footing after the tensions of the Trump years. Sabina Vayant, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you very much, Noah, for the opportunity and for having me.
0: I'd like to start out with a question about the EU-China investment agreement, the CHI. One year ago, you were putting the finishing touches on this deal. Three months later, we had the exchange of sanctions, and now the deal is in the deep freeze, so to speak. You've said it's time for the EU to re-engage with Beijing. Do you see a path for achieving progress on trade and investment issues with China outside the framework of the CHI?
1: Well, first of all, I think that the draft agreement that we have negotiated is a very good one. And uh, I think it was uh, a good. It was good that we came to the conclusion of this agreement. Now, obviously, uh, everyone has to take their responsibilities. As negotiator, the Commission had to take uh, the the decision and make the judgment whether what we had managed to negotiate was good enough and conform to the mandate we had received. That was the case. But indeed, as you said. Uh, After that, there have been developments which have now uh, made ratification a very distant prospect. That still means that we would be better off with this agreement because it would go quite some way to rebalance our currently unbalanced relationship in terms of market access, in terms of rules on state-owned enterprises, on uh, uh, Transparency and subsidies, etc. So it is uh, an agreement which is still worth having. This being said, as ratification is a distant prospect at the moment, we also need to look after our interests in the absence of CHI. There is no alternative but to engage with China. And on the trade and investment track, there are a lot of market access issues that we have to tackle. Uh, there are lots of barriers that we need to address. Uh, I'm sure we will come to the current, most recent uh, barriers that Lithuania has been experiencing uh, recently. But there are a lot of issues uh, that we have to address, including also um, disadvantages for the EU from the phase one deal between the US and China. So we need to speak Uh, to Beijing in order to find solutions to these difficulties. Bilateral engagement is necessary, even if it's difficult. It's not the only pathway. We also need to look at WTO reform in order to strengthen, notably, level playing field and reciprocity uh, conditions in the WTO. China has been a member for 20 years. China has benefited enormously But there is a fallout from the Chinese system that needs to be addressed. So we are also trying to engage China in a discussion on the reform of the WTO that would look at competitive neutrality and allow different economic systems to coexist. Um, So I think the multilateral uh, pathway is a very important one. And then, of course, I think it is always best to speak to China, but also to other partners from a position of strength. And that brings me to our autonomous measures that we are strengthening. They are not directed at any particular country, but they are equipping the EU with the tools to defend itself, to promote its interests, where multilateral or bilateral negotiations do not yield results. And we are doing so in different categories. Uh, We've been developing this toolbox already for quite a while. It's still not complete, but um, I would just remind you of... Different categories of autonomous instruments that we have been working on. Uh, We have them on the issue of uh, the level playing field with the international procurement instrument that we are now finally close to getting on our statute book. It's only been 10 years, but you know, sometimes uh, things take time, but they do work in the end. There are issues which are uh, related to security. Uh, We have uh, been developing an FDI screening mechanism, which has worked quite well for a year already. Uh, We have strengthened export control uh, provisions. uh, So I think that is also something that helps us. Then we have uh, issues uh, uh, of uh, values. And here I'm thinking about our global human rights sanctions regime, the application of which has led to a strong, I would say, overreaction on the part of China. But the instrument is there. Uh, it's not country-specific, uh, but it is there to be, to be deployed. Um, and then we also um, have in the pipeline our uh, corporate uh, governance proposal, otherwise known as due diligence. In that context, we are also looking at uh, uh, tools to prevent that goods derived from forced labor can be put on the EU market. So I think it is this combination of multilateral, bilateral uh, and autonomous tools uh, that should yield results. But, you know, China is a very important player in the economy, but also globally to address all sorts of challenges. Um, and I think we have, to, uh, we have to be able to engage with them.
0: Do you think there's any chance that, of reviving the Kai during this commission? which ends, I think, in 2024?
1: I would hope so, because as I said, it's a good agreement. Um, It's in our interest. But I also uh, have to be very clear-eyed about the fact that as long as there are sanctions in place against members of the European Parliament, there is simply no pathway to ratification. Um, I still hope that uh, China would find a way to lift these sanctions, which is a prerequisite, I would also hope that um, the completion of our autonomous toolbox, uh, toolbox could convince legislators and member states that uh, we are not defenceless and that not everything, every issue under the sun, needs to be resolved by CHI. um So I think that uh, uh, it would be very useful if we could find a way forward. And I think that even absent ratification of CHI, things can move in that direction. And Kai is helpful even in its unratified state, because it shows what type of commitment China is in principle willing to enter into. And some of these commitments were made for the very first time. And I understand, for instance, that China is moving forward uh, towards ratification of the ILO conventions that it promised to make sustained efforts to ratify in the Kai, So that process is continuing, even in the absence of a ratification of CAI. Um, and we are also engaging with other partners and uh, to see whether we can build something on the type of commitments that China has been making on industrial subsidies, on SOEs, on forced technology transfer, This is also the subject of the trilateral talks that we are having with the US and Japan and which could become the nucleus of some sort of work in the WTO, some agreement in the WTO on competitive neutrality. So even unratified, CAI is useful.
0: What what you said about uh, China moving on the forced labor issue, uh, ILO commitments, is is that something that one can hope uh we see something from China on in, in, in 2022 uh, some some sort of uh, movement on that
1: I do not want to speculate about that uh, I do not uh, uh, I do not have enough insight into the domestic Chinese uh, uh, processes to make any predictions about that but I do see that they are moving forward on the ratification issues that they promised to move forward on. How far that movement will go, I'm not able to judge. I can only refer to what I'm actually observing. I'm not commenting on possible intentions about which I know nothing.
0: Okay, we'll keep our fingers crossed on that. I I do want to ask about the ongoing dispute between Lithuania and and China. Uh, Earlier this year, Lithuania allowed Taiwan to open a representative office in the country. Beijing has responded by blocking uh, Lithuanian exports into China uh, and, and pressuring European firms that export to China to remove Lithuanian inputs from their supply chains. What can and what should the EU do here?
1: Well, first of all, I think the EU has to show solidarity with Lithuania under these circumstances. Blocking exports from one member state is blocking exports from the EU. So it requires a response from the EU. I think that is what we have been trying to show. There was a discussion at the European Council uh, where there was an expression of solidarity uh, with uh, Lithuania. We have issued, when I say we, I actually mean the HRVP, the high representative, uh, Joseph Borrell, and Executive Vice President Valdis um, we have they have issued a statement uh, that made it very clear that uh, this is something that needs to be addressed. We, are, we have also raised this issue in the context of the WTO, in the Market Access Committee, in the General Council. It was also raised by WTO Director, uh, director General Ngozi at our request. Um, and we are looking at all possibilities. So we are working very closely with Lithuania uh, to ascertain the facts. Uh, We uh, have been uh, trying to uh, talk to the Chinese authorities in order to get um, some clarity about what is happening on their side and how they intend to redress the situation. That uh, That has not been leading to results so far, In the meantime, we are getting uh, reports that also the exports of other EU member states are being blocked, are being affected by the block on Lithuania uh, because of the integrated supply chains in the EU. And I think it is clear that this is not a bilateral issue, China-Lithuania. This is an issue, China-EU. And we are also looking into uh, uh, how we defend our rights in the WTO.
0: A WTO case would take months, maybe years. That seems to be an impediment here to resolving this, is it not?
1: Well, contrary to what some other countries are saying, I think uh, China has, in the 20 years of its membership, actually shown that it cares about respecting the rules and that where it has been found to breach the rules, it conforms. So um, I think from that point of view, the simple fact that uh, we uh, will be launching a request for consultations will make it clear that this issue has taken on an importance which perhaps was not fully measured uh, when the first uh, measures were taken against uh, Lithuania. So from that point of view, uh, you are right, Getting a case uh, to final arbitration is very difficult uh, and uh, takes a long time in the WTO. But very often you see that uh, if there are already consultations, you can get more easily to to a resolution. We are certainly exploring all avenues uh, to see what what we can do to redress the situation.
0: It seems to me if you are a German or a French company that is exporting goods to China that are being blocked because they have Lithuanian inputs, I imagine the natural reaction would be to produce them elsewhere. And and that may not be easy. It might take some time. Uh, but that's what I think you would expect uh, companies uh, to do. The problem for Europe, of course, is that this would mean that China's Coercion has essentially worked. So uh, my question is, does the EU, do European governments have a role in uh, to play in telling companies not to shift their supply chains out of Lithuania?
1: I'm not so sure I would share the premise of your question. Because what we, we are currently seeing is that... Uh, we hear of the fact and we are being approached by member states who hear from their companies that uh, they are being affected by these measures. And we are being contacted with a view to trying to find a solution. So I do not have the impression that um, other member states' companies just shrug their shoulders and say, well, then I will source my uh, input from somewhere else than Lithuania. And I also think that we should not underestimate the cost of switching supply chains. Um, So I think this is something that, of course, uh, as I said, I don't see a development in that direction at this stage. Um, And it is something we would certainly want to avoid. And that means that we have to do, we have to take indeed speedy action here.
0: The commission recently came out with a proposal for an anti-coercion instrument what is your sense? If this instrument was in place now, do you think it would have deterred China from taking the measures that it has against uh, Lithuania?
1: I think it is very difficult uh, to answer a, a theoretical question here, a hypothetical question. The case shows, though, in my view, the necessity for an instrument like the anti-coercion instrument. I think it's a demonstration of why we need this sort of tool. Um, and we would certainly uh, have assessed the Chinese action under this tool. And then, of course, there would have been speedier ways of, uh, of response. Now, I can I can you you it's already difficult for me to speculate about how exactly we would have handled this case under a non-existent instrument for which we've only just made a proposal. It's even harder to predict what would have been the reaction by China. Uh, But I think the case shows why we need an instrument like this.
0: I want to continue on the the Taiwan uh, thread. Uh, As you know, the European Parliament overwhelmingly endorsed a report on EU-Taiwan relations in October uh, that report uh, calls on the European Commission, uh, and I'm quoting here, to urgently begin an impact assessment, public consultation, and scoping exercise on a bilateral investment agreement with Taiwan. What, what, what is the European Commission's position on the idea of a, a BIA with Taiwan? Well,
1: first of all, EU-Taiwan economic relations are very close. And I think in general, the EU and Taiwan are like-minded countries in many ways. And There is scope to further deepen our ties and our exchanges in various areas of mutual interest. We have similar objectives on issues such as human rights, trade and investment, environment, green energy, connectivity, but also on, on challenges posed by the pandemic or by disinformation. We have a shared interest in promoting stability and security, multilateralism and rules-based uh, uh, international organizations. So there's a lot of scope for cooperation there. Our overall economic relationship is already very good, and I would expect it to continue to develop positively in 2022. Um, we've just had uh, uh, this autumn the second edition of the joint uh, European investment forum uh, with a strong high level participation on both sides. Um, And I think uh, there is a strong drive uh, towards uh, promoting investment in both directions. By the way, um, Taiwanese investment in Europe has uh, uh, doubled last year. Um, So I think that is a good basis on which to engage. Now, a bilateral investment agreement um, would not necessarily address the most topical issues that we need to work on in our relationship. So we are, for instance, rather looking at how can we uh, cooperate more uh, in the area of information and communication technology and how, what can we do more on working together on semiconductors, uh, which is indeed a very topical issue where we want to avoid Um, over-dependence on one or the other partner where we need to diversify uh, our supply. And uh, Taiwan is a semiconductor superpower. So we have every interest in working with them. So what we are looking at is what are the areas of cooperation that are most beneficial? And uh, that is happening, Uh, but uh, um, it is not necessarily the case that a bilateral investment agreement um, would really respond to um, the needs in 2022 for a strengthening of the EU-Taiwan relations.
0: And, and you, I presume you, you can't see any circumstances under which that position on an investment agreement with Taiwan would, would change over the coming year.
1: I have been in the business for too long to exclude anything from happening in the future. I'm just sharing with you the current state of our reflection, which is looking very much into what are the areas where the mutual interest and possibilities of cooperation between the EU and Taiwan are the most urgent and the most topical. But I'm not going to make predictions about the future or exclude anything for the future.
0: But but you do, if I understand you correctly, uh, you expect EU-Taiwan trade and investment relations to ratchet up in 2022 to, to further develop, perhaps reach a, a new level.
1: That is certainly the trend which we are seeing uh, and uh, which we are very happy uh, to maintain and entertain and push forward.
0: I'd like to shift gears a little and talk about Uh, the trade relationship with the U.S., and more specifically, uh, the EU-U.S. Trade and Technology Council. A first meeting was held in Pittsburgh in late September. Uh, It produced a a comprehensive joint statement with both sides agreeing to work together on issues like export controls, investment screening, semiconductor supply chains, artificial intelligence, uh, and a lot more. What would you say, of course, there's going to be another meeting in in, in 2022, what what, what would you say are the most promising areas under the TTC uh, for next year, the two or three areas where you expect uh, concrete uh, progress?
1: Well, first of all, for me, the main benefit of the Trade and Technology Council between the EU and the US is the degree of commitment and engagement at the level of principles. Uh, Pittsburgh was indeed a very successful first meeting. And what I thought was particularly important is that you had the uh, five principles striking up a personal relationship, discussing strategically for hours. It's very rare that people at that level of responsibility and with that uh, Uh, sort of diary constraints take the time uh, to invest in building this sort of relationships. And I think that got us off to a very good start. I must say I was also very happy with what we were able to produce uh, just uh, within three months of setting up or agreeing to set up uh, the TTC. So all the working groups, the 10 working groups, have detailed work programs, which we now need to build on. And you've mentioned already some of the the promising areas which we want to take forward uh, next year. That's artificial intelligence, resilient supply chains, uh, export controls and investment screening. But I think what is very important is what we saw in Pittsburgh is that there are there's a high level of expectations from stakeholders on both sides of the Atlantic about what this can deliver. Um, And this ranges uh, really from cooperation on uh, emerging challenges in the trade and tech sectors, which I've just mentioned, to avoiding the emergence of new regulatory barriers in bilateral trade uh, uh, flows, uh, but also to how can we work together to tackle global issues. And here, we have also realized that we very much depend on the input we get from stakeholders. And that is why, since Pittsburgh, we have invested enormously in getting input from the different sectors of civil society, from business associations, from NGOs, um, in order to really make sure that the priorities correspond to a real need of the people who will make this transatlantic economy in the trade and tech field actually work. So I think there is a lot of um, work required in order to get this quality input and then build the concrete outcomes on that area. But I think with the work programs of the 10 working groups we already have a very good roadmap on which uh, on which to move uh, forward. Um, and I am pretty confident that uh, the next meeting, Uh, which will take place in Europe in spring, uh, will be able to produce uh, concrete deliverables, but will also set the pathway to what can be delivered by the end of this commission, by the end of the current administration. Because I think that is the time horizon where we really have to show that this new platform can make make a difference.
0: Yes, I imagine 2022 is really a crucial year because... At the meeting in September, you you, you set out the the plan, uh, and now it's really about uh, delivering uh, concrete uh, um, uh, concrete uh, agreements. Uh, and it it is a, it is a short window to a certain extent. I mean, you talked about the end of the commission. Um, you know, we have the midterms in the U.S. Uh, everybody's scared about those. Um, next year is pretty crucial on the on the TTC, I imagine.
1: I would tend to agree with that um, because I think you can have a first meeting where you set out the stall, but as I said, there are very high expectations and we have to be able to show that the TTC can make a very concrete difference on the ground, on the way in which trade and technology relations function across the Atlantic. So I would tend to agree that 2022 is a key year. It will not be the year where we solve all the issues, that will, But that will not be the case in 2023 either. But I think uh, we will have to have this both short-term deliverables and the medium-term outlook on what we concretely want to, to achieve. And Pittsburgh, I thought, set us off on a good track towards that.
0: Perhaps a final question uh, about the WTO, which you touched on earlier. You've said that WTO reform is impossible uh, without China. What if China is simply not willing to play ball? How, how much patience should Europe, the U.S. and other countries like Japan uh, have? Is, is there any point where you say to yourself, we need, a, we need a plan B?
1: First of all, WTO reform requires agreement between all 164 members. So that shows that it is challenging to get there. what we have also seen is that nothing moves without a commitment and engagement on the US side. So what we need is basically a triangle um, with uh, the EU, the US and China in order to move things forward. And at the moment, this looks very difficult, and the fact that MC12, uh, the, the ministerial conference, had to be postponed doesn't help either. Uh, but I think it, is, it has become very clear that without a rules-based order, we are all worse off. So, Plan A has to work, which is getting the WTO to deal with the current challenges. Now that means there are some immediate tasks, like the response of the WTO to the pandemic. That is very much what we are focused on. Then we have the issue of the fishery subsidies agreement, uh, which we where we, there was good progress ahead of MC twelve. Uh, but with the ministerial meeting now postponed, you can see that at the level of officials, there's a tendency to uh, withdraw behind the trenches. So we have to break that uh, unfavorable dynamic uh, because actually a deal was very close uh, uh, when the when the WTO meeting got postponed. Um, and then, of course, we ha- also have to find a way forward on agriculture. And I think if we have that, then we are in a better place to really move forward a reform agenda that looks at all three functions and everyone has to contribute to that reform. So this is not something where you can just say, It's China that needs to engage. If I look at the the negotiating function, which has been paralysed basically for a very long period of time, I think we all have to contribute to reviewing the way we do business in the WTO. And that involves also how can we make it easier to have plurilateral agreements rather than multilateral ones in cases where not all 164 are willing or able to move forward at the same moment. Um, But we also have to give assurances in that case that these agreements remain open, negotiation is transparent, negotiations are also open for participation from those who cannot yet uh, join uh, uh, these agreements or uh, cannot actively uh, participate. And how can we reassure that the agreements are not to the detriment of the rights of the uh, non-participating member states? So a lot to be done on the negotiating uh, front. Part of that is also this issue of competitive neutrality. And that is where I think we really need to engage China and say, look, you've benefited enormously uh, from uh, uh, from your integration into the world economy and your, your membership of the WTO. But there is an increasing uneasiness, and it's not just in the U.S., with the fallout of China's economic system, with the distortions, the overcapacity, the distortions through subsidization, uh, through privileges for state-owned enterprises, uh, the forced technology issue is not solved uh, uh, definitively. So there are a lot of things to do uh, on competitive neutrality, which would basically allow uh, different economic systems to coexist because it is also clear that we will not we cannot base wTO reform on the assumption of regime change in China that would be unrealistic and that is not the role of the WTO either but we have to see how can we make sure that different economic systems get along and then comes another component, and that is if we are able to create such new rules and as I said kai is an indication that there are certain rules China is willing to commit to or that are, in principle, negotiable with China. And I also remember that President Xi recently said that China would be willing to negotiate rules on industrial subsidies. I think that was a first. Um, So I think we should build on that. But that then also means that hopefully the US will get some interest in getting the dispute settlement function uh, uh, back and up and running. Um, so, you know, there are. everyone has to make a contribution to that. We have to, in reforming the dispute settlement, also from the EU side, we have made gigantic steps towards uh, the US. Uh, there is a real willingness to uh, deal with some of the grievances uh, they have expressed. So I think there is something that can happen there. But we need to make sure that we negotiate new rules that are fit for the 21st century and that we have the dispute settlement to make uh, sure that these rules are actually respected. So this is not, you know, uh, the rest of the world against China. This has to be a collaborative uh, enterprise and it requires investment and commitment from the US, from China, from the EU, but also other partners with whom we are working inside the WTO. Because in the end, all 164 members will have to agree.
0: Well, let's hope that Plan A works. Uh, Sadly, we need to end it there. Sabina, thank you uh, so much for joining me.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Noah.
0: And thanks to everyone else for listening in. Don't miss my Watching China in Europe newsletter each month. And stay tuned for more conversations about the Europe-China relationship in the months ahead.